0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And
0: And welcome welcome to to School of Movies. (laughs) The Films of the Coen Brothers. Part 1. Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton
2: Fink and The Hudsucker Proxy.
0: This is the start of a series we are going to put together that we do not know how big or how extensive it is from where we stand right now, but it's going to be all about the films of Joel and Ethan Cohen. They were born in 1954 and 1957, respectively, which puts them in their mid to late 60s now. And they've been directing movies for as long as I can remember. Their first was Blood Simple, that we're going to be talking about in just a bit. That was in 1984. And they started as they mean to go on because it contains many of the hallmarks of their later films. And at the point of recording their most recent is 2021's The Tragedy of Macbeth.
1: The Tragedy of Macbeth having been directed only by Joel.
0: And I haven't seen that one, uh, but Sharon did. And we have, over the past few weeks, seen all 18 of their films in a strange higgledy-piggledy order because I didn't realise we were going to be doing... All of them. To begin with, it was just, let's catch up on some of the ones that we haven't seen, and at the same time reappraise some of the ones that we like. And then it eventually became all of them. But as we were going through, uh, I noticed something which... When Honest Trailers uh, covered every Wes Anderson film ever, they did a whole list of things that turn up in Wes Anderson films, and it was right on the money. It was superficial, but at the same time, being able to notice those hallmarks makes at least a play for the idea that uh, Anderson is an auteur. Frankly, I I feel like I could watch a a, a sequence from a new Wes Anderson film and know that it's him or someone doing him.
1: Yeah, yeah. He has a style and an aesthetic and a way of framing certain shots. It goes way beyond just a a theme or a tone. Mm.
0: However, I feel like I'd have to actually watch part of the whole movie to get that it's a Coen Brothers film. There have been a lot of different tones in these. There's a lot of similarities, which I'll go into in just a second, but uh, they they handle things differently. And by and large, they're telling the same three types of story over and over again. So, if you watch a Coen Brothers film, you can expect to see, or indeed here, Carter Burwell scores because he was in everything except Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He has literally scored everything except Inside Lewin Davis, which doesn't have a score, but is filled with folk music all the same. Yes. Oh Brother Where Art Thou uh, had to have a bluegrass feel to it and a, a measure of authenticity, so they went with T-Bone Burnett there. Uh, you can also expect to see, on average, Roger Deakins' cinematography. Now, Roger Deakins is arguably the greatest cinematographer living today, right now, at least of our time, who has been working in the past 30 years or so. He was DP on 12 out of 19 of their films. The first three were all photographed by Barry Sonnenfeld, director of Men in Black, Adam's Family, Wild Wild West. But he certainly... I can see why his eye would help the Coen brothers kind of find their feet. But as of Barton Fink and Until Hail Caesar, all but burn after reading, and again, inside Lewin Davis, were Roger Deakins. And obviously we'll be talking about him as we move forwards. Watching Coen Brothers films, you can expect long, still, tense shots. You can expect amazing, quirky, memorable, and unique musical choices. Brief appearances from beloved actors that make you go, ah, kidnapping. Sharon's nodding hard. Irritating women. Kidnapping irritating women. Lies. Stolen money. Sharon's nodding very hard. Lies about kidnapping, irritating women and receiving stolen money. Cops who get to the scene a little too late to save the day. Cowboys. Mysterious strangers. Long, lonesome roads. Mysterious stranger cowboys on long, lonesome roads. Doc. Stalking presences. Dark-Stalking Cowboys Dark, mysterious, stalking cowboys, strangers on long, lonesome roads looking for stolen money Foul Language John Goodman Beating up cars John Goodman using foul language as he beats up a car Smart Women negotiating Frances McDormand Someone being the only good person in the whole world Smart, negotiating woman Frances McDormand being the only good person in the whole world Frustrated struggling artists. My god do we see that a lot. John Torturo. People getting very upset. John Torturo, the frustrated struggling artist getting very upset. Goofy Schmucks. George Clooney. Beautiful singing. Goofy Schmucks and frustrating struggling artists George Clooney and John Torturo being sung to beautifully. Josh Brolin. Guys getting slapped around. Josh Brolin slapping George Clooney around. Weird vain men. People being deadpan hilarious. George Clooney being a weird, vain, deadpan hilarious man. Sudden, strange, uncomfortable examples of uncomplicated racial stereotypes. Big fat men. Screaming. A big fat man screaming. We actually got to the point where we were like, a big fat guy screaming. Must be a Coen Brothers movie.
1: I think that showed in every single one.
0: Up until maybe. I think The Lady Killers might have been the last one, but definitely throughout the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Staring in wordless amazement. Assumptions leading to calamity. Big guns. George Clooney staring in wordless amazement as a big fat man screams and dies unexpectedly because of an assumption related to a big gun. Swooping camera shots in enclosed spaces. John Totoro, very upset staring in wordless amazement as fat man John Goodman holding a big gun screams during a swooping camera shot in an enclosed space. If you've seen loads of Coen Brothers films, by the way, all oh, that was fucking funny. If you haven't, this this series of episodes will prepare you. We're going to do, I suppose, shorter kind of overviews of the ones that we kind of engage with and probably at least one major show. I want to do The Big Lebowski. I, I want to do The Big Lebowski as a full show. That's That's one that we could really talk about. But we're going to start in uh, chronological order of release with Blood Simple. What I know about is
3: Texas. Down here, you're on your own. Hello.
2: Having a good time?
4: Hey, who is it?
3: Your husband. I got a job for you. It's not strictly legal. You want me to kill him?
1: Right?
0: Let's get out of here. <laughs> okay, so Blood Simple, a 1984 American independent neo-noir crime film. Neo-noir is a good way of describing most of these uh, movies. Written, edited, produced, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. They have a strange way of, at least for the, the first half of their career, if you actually look at the director's credits, Joel directed all of them, as in in terms of credit, Ethan was uncredited for directing, for co directing Blood Simple, and then all the way up to The Lady Killers in 2004, 20 years later, it was always just billed as Joel did the uh, directing, written by Ethan and Joel, or Joel and Ethan. It's a strange one for it's who a, did it's which It's a directors'
1: first. guild quirk. Yeah. You can only credit two directors on the same film if they are part of an established duo. So they obviously had to work together for 20 years. Before the Directors Guild would accept crediting them together.
0: That's so weird. Throughout the 90s, it was just Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers. They were 90s darlings because they'd already started being quirky and indie before the 90s quirky indie scene really took off. Yeah. Like, the 90s was a time when Gen Xers got to a point where they'd become so literate and they gravitated towards their kind of indie films, which were a little bit more strange and shabby and dangerous than uh, a lot of the sort of indie, uh, cheaper films that were, well high profile films or independent films that were art house there's a difference between indian art house mm. and it felt like the, uh, the 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 sight and sound crowd were really into art house and then in the 90s richard Linklater was a huge deal jim jaramush was a huge deal paul thomas anderson was about to be a huge deal tarantino was a huge deal kevin smith was a huge deal mm. the coen brothers were already a huge deal yeah. so the idea that they had to still carry on until 2004 past their prime, I would say, before they could actually be officially recognized as a a, a duo. Meanwhile, the fucking Russo brothers and the Wachowskis.
1: My guess would be that the rules have been changed since then.
0: Yeah, I suppose so.
1: But I mean, I would certainly say that with regards to how you distinguish between an art house and an indie, an art house movie to me always feels like one that is very deliberately crafted in a certain way. And an indie movie tends to be a bit choppier and a bit more, there's there's an intentionality of of theme and story and, and tone maybe, but it seems a bit more piecemeal in terms of how we're going to do this, we'll grab me some duct tape and we'll manage the best we can.
0: I don't think there's a hard and fast definition of what an indie film necessarily looks like or even is, Mm. but the assumption is just that it's made outside the studio system. You don't have to schmooze the guys with the big bucks because the budgets are lower. So effectively, the budgets are obtained by producers going in different directions than you would normally if you were working for say, Directly working for Warner Brothers. Yeah,
1: but an indie. That's why things d- like
0: Fox Searchlight have indie sensibilities, but they're protected by, yeah. us. or at least they were, and then Disney bought them and disbanded them.
1: But uh, an indie movie, I think, it can still be commercial. An art house movie is; it, they always seem to be very deliberately made without any intention mm-hmm. of making any money out of them.
0: Occasionally you'll get what are art house movies that suddenly strike it big, but those tended to happen more in the 2000s hmm. than they do now. Yeah. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was a uh, spectacular example of a martial art house film that did extremely well because mm-hmm. it was that spectacular. Yeah.
1: I think as well you mentioned that they, they have kind of a neo-noir um, style. They overlap into that a little bit. Neo-noir tends to be um, a bit more like... The LA type stuff,
5: mm-hmm.
1: and there's a bit more Western noir. I don't know if there's a term that we could apply to that. They're very dusty. Mm. They're very
0: yeah, no, of the no, middle no. of
1: nowhere America.
0: So uh, Nick Cage in Wild at Heart, U Turn by directed by Oliver Stone. That, that these are, I think those are all classified as neo noir. Mm. For some reason, there's a, an attachment to Los Angeles for noir. Like mm. like it's the best. Example of like Los Angeles, maybe Chica- well, Chicago for the classic noirs, mm. but LA and maybe New York for uh, for for modern ones. Yeah. But the Coens tend to steer clear of the major cities and they do a lot of stuff out in the country.
1: Well, the big cities, I think, do tend to have that that neon noir mm. thing going on, which is like. Um,
0: Blade Runner. I think some
1: examples of that. Blade Runner definitely is Drive. a sci-fi that leans over into it. Drive, yes. But Neon that, Demon. Yeah, but they they tend to be like I said very city focused. I think with with what the the area around LA tends to offer you is you don't have to go far before you are now mm. in the middle of nowhere and no one can help you.
2: You're
0: absolutely right on the Western influences. Most of these films that we're going to talk about could be classified as some form of Western. Mm-hmm. So where where the noir and the Western collide, you'll find the Coen brothers. Yeah. And some of these films are dark comedies and some of them are just not funny. And it could be because they're just not well Handled, or we don't have that sense of humour? Because they seem to change sense of humour repeatedly. Oh, they do. The Lady Killers totally. has a totally different sense of humour to Fargo.
1: Absolutely. And and uh, A Serious Man was described as a black comedy. And I'm hilarious. Sort of thinking, and I just
0: felt sorry for everyone the so whole way through. There's
1: so little in that to, to laugh at or find fun. I mean, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, but that's not the same thing.
0: Mm. But again, this comes as a result of seeing all of these movies Mm. in relatively quick succession until you start to feel like you're watching one singularity of movies.
1: Yeah. One thing I will say that I think is one of the differences between their style of noir and like your classic Chicago noir is the time of day. These, you are under hot sun and you wish it would stop.
0: Or deep, deep cold and snow.
1: Yes, True.
3: You know, in Greece, they would
5: cut off the head of
3: the messenger that brought the bad news. That don't make much sense?
5: No. Made them feel better.
3: Well, first off, I don't know what the story is in Greece. But in this state, we got very definite laws about that. Second, I'm not a messenger. I'm a private investigator. And third, most important, it ain't such bad news. Don't come around here anymore. If I need you, I'll know what rock to turn over. <laughs> That's good. <you> know? <laughs> what rock to turn over? That's very, very good. <laughs> Give me a call whenever you want to cut off my head. I can always crawl around without it.
0: <laughs> okay, so Blood Simple's plot. Follows te- a Texas bartender who finds himself in the midst of a murder, while his boss discovers that he's having a love affair with his wife. That this could be any number of the uh, films we're about to talk about. It was the directorial debut of the Cohens. Uh, you'll notice also when you're watching the uh, credits, the producers are often Ethan Cohen and Joel Cohen, or one of them will be uncredited, but they're both producing. Edited by a man named Roderick James, who does not exist. That's the Cohen brothers doing that as well.
1: If you look at the tragedy of Macbeth, it's, I believe, Reginald Jane's, which I'm ah, assuming
0: means Roderick's fake son.
1: Joel edited on his own.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Reginald? I disagree!
0: So uh, the, the notable thing about this one, uh, Blood Simple, is that uh, Dan Hedaya ends up being shot but not quite dying and then the bartender you know takes him out to bury him and then it turns out he's still alive so the bartender's stuck in a difficult situation because it's like what the hell do i do about the fact that this guy in my trunk is still alive i had intended to bury him And it seems like this was more than a little inspirational for Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel, No Country for Old Men, which they then went on to adapt. And also, Francis McDormand, plays his wife, falls afoul of a creepy, shadowy, mysterious bounty hunter, played by M. Emmett Walsh. He's less scary than Anton Chagar from No Country for Old Men, but that doesn't make him any less memorable. He's got this kind of, Yeah, sure was a shame about that Francis McDormand. Couldn't get along out of here. With all these dangers and that. He has a strange, lilting voice and is very tenaciously... The end of the film is a Hitchcockian tension sequence where he's trying to kill her in a darkened building, which also reminded me of Blade Runner that only came out like two years before this, uh, where Roy Batty is chasing Deckard through this darkened, ruined house. I think the lighting played a part here and the smashing through walls and windows. And we won't say how it ends, but it is a solid debut.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's certainly got a lot of qualities that I really appreciated. I have always been a fan of noir, in its various forms, which is not to say I love all of them unquestioningly, some of them are downright shit, but the, the, the feeling of depression and desperation mm. and how people juggle those things and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. Those are the elements of noir that I really like to see realised well.
0: The second film they directed has a
1: completely different tone.
0: It's Raising Arizona, and it's like screwball comedy from the word go.
3: The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But... Biology conspired to keep his childless.
5: You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. I got more than they can
3: handle. At the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. I
2: want Nathan Jr. back! What's his
3: name? Ed Jr. Hi, Junior. So far, we've just been using Junior. We call him
4: Junior. <laughs> uh, he's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're going to go pick up Daddy. I've
3: been taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you
4: busted out of jail.
5: We
3: released for Shavs on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us.
5: <gasps> we got a child now! Everything's changed! Yeah!
2: Where's Junior?
3: <laughs> Who the hell are you? My oh, man. We're absolutely going to get him back. There just ain't no question about that.
5: Give me that baby, you warthog from hell!
3: And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Junior. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet.
0: Nick Cage comes blundering into the shot and uh, gets photographed for police mug shots, and his first words are, "Call me high." And this is a, a young not quite crazy yet, definitely out to prove himself, Nick Cage, but like Francis Ford Coppola's nephew at this stage. And he's uh, hooked up with uh, Holly Hunter, who is a cop who he keeps convening with during the many, many times he gets arrested for armed robbery. And they end up uh, uh, becoming a couple and trying to have a child and they can't. So they end up kidnapping, uh, so much kidnapping going to happen. Uh, the one baby of a rich, is it like a furniture magnate? Yes. Whose wife just had quince. Yes. And it's like, well, it, you know, Holly Hunter plays, you know, she's teetering back and forth on morality and, and the efficacy of this one. She, You know, she's like, you know, it's, it just seems unfair that That this couple should get five babies and we can't get one, and they know it's wrong to take a baby, but they do anyway, and there's this strange, almost Peter Pan-like baby snatching that goes on. Blood Simple involves crime with people making oversights and mistakes and things going wrong. This is straight up boobs like screwing up in a way that it's like that you couldn't not have screwed up at this point
1: Mm, yeah that's another thing that is a repeated motif of coen brothers movies is people making decisions and choices foolishly Mm. and then when things go wrong, it's like you can see the cliff crumbling from underneath them, Mm -hmm. and you know exactly why. And they know exactly why, but it's too late now to do anything about it.
0: And the complications, because there's always complications, (laughs) arise when they get the kid back to their trailer (laughs) and start trying to be mum and dad, and then John Goodman and his buddy turn up, because they were in the pen with Nicolas Cage before he got out, and they have now tunneled their way out, and they want to hide out in this trailer. So it becomes this kind of, oh god, we've got uncomfortable guests who are also jailbirds staying with us, and then it's when will they find out? When will the blackmail start? And the baby gets carted left, right, and centre, and the baby seems to be fine with most of this stuff. But there's a lot of kind of baby-changing hands and blackmail going on, and... The whole thing is, is farcical, but it coalesces at the end. Uh, Willow did not find it particularly great and bowed out. Uh, their new phrase is, I'm going to dip. Like, I'm on dip at this point. Like, I'm, I'm done with this. And they miss the end. The end is just this little speech that Nick Cage gives, this little soliloquy, this little waking dream where he pictures himself and his wife in the future having had a family and it's a truly touching moment after such zany shenanigans of the kind where, you know, a a big chunk of this uh, movie, a terrifying biker, who's kind of similar to Anton Chagat played by Randall Tex Cobb. He's driving along on his uh, motorbike and he's being spoken of in mythological terms as this desert shadow. And it's like, as he drives past, is it that a, a lizard catches fire? It's that kind of movie. Yeah,
1: yeah. The it, it, it is. Implied. It's a cartoon. It, it is suggested that he is the personification of death.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of that mythology sort of uh, going throughout these shadowy figures in the Coen brothers films. It, but it's the kind of uh, movie where during the tense uh, escape sequences they'll play yodeling music because they'll they want the audience to have a great time. Mm. And it's a very enjoyable film. I, I, you know, it, it, It's like I said, it's farcical, but it, it has that ending where you're disarmed mm. because you underestimated the lead characters and yeah. the depths of their emotional intelligence.
1: There's an element of Greek tragedy that goes on with a lot of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Which, like I said, that whole... You can see them doing these stupid things and you know it's all going to go wrong for them. And it it's... There's often that sort of they try to backpedal as hard mm. as they can, and, and the more they backpedal, you know, that's just going to take them down the road they shouldn't go down even faster. Mm. And I think that was one of the reasons why uh, I loved *O Brother Where Art Thou* so much mm. because they leaned so heavily into that Greek tragedy element. Yeah,
0: it's based on a Greek Odyssey. Yes, the, the Greek, Greek Odyssey. odyssey. <laughs> And uh, But but here's the thing. So many people do foolish things in pursuit of, uh, in Margie's words, a small amount of money. Just a little bit of money. Yeah. And in this, it's a baby. Something they can't buy, they can't have, mm. they can't adopt with a with, uh, high's record. And it just seems like life is not going to give them a chance. So you can understand why they do this crazy goddamn thing. The...
1: the- Chasing the small amount of money, I think, comes in the part of other characters because there is a reward offered for the return of the child, ultimately. Yeah. And this is why certain individuals are trying to steal the baby from them yeah. so that they can return it for the reward. Yeah. But the that's where the desperation comes in, I think, because where their characters differ from a lot of other Hollywood uh Hollywood characters is that the money is very mm. crucial to their lives in the sense that they by and large don't have any or don't have much or they don't have enough to do a specific thing that they want to do. Mm. Crime drama comedies whatever often tend more towards the if it's if it's organized crime it's we're doing this for the respect it never really looks much at the fact that if you don't do this you might start off that this is the only real career... Yeah,
0: organised crime is rarely uh, uh, an act of desperation, though yeah. there are individual moves that are acts of desperation as a result of a domino absolutely, effect.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But the Cohen
0: brothers don't tend to... There's one in particular where it's mob-related, yeah. and that's coming right up.
1: Indeed. But for the most part, the characters, especially the ones who are good but dumb, mm. usually their acts of desperation are singular they are, they, they would be good, decent, unassuming people mm. were it not for this one choice. Mm. And there's always somebody who is utterly baffled by everything that's going on. Mm.
2: From the makers of Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, a world where nothing is what it seems to be. Leo, is he still the boss? day I back down from a fight, Casper's welcome to the Rackets, this town, and my place at the table. Casper, can he muscle in? I'm sick of taking a strap from you, Leo. And I'm sick
5: of a high hat!
2: Tom, would he sell out a friend? You shouldn't be confronting Jenny, Casper. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I can still trade body blows with any man in this town. Except you, Tom. And Verna. Verna, is she Leo's girl?
5: What did you tell Leo?
2: I told him you were a tramp and he should dump you. I want everybody to be friends. You, me, Leo, the Dane. You know who I am? The Dane. Has he got it figured? You dumping Leo for the guy who put a bullet in your brother? Bernie. Will he turn
3: the tables? Don't smart me. I want to watch you squirm. I want to see you sweat a little. All you gotta do to show your friend is give me Bernie Bum. Bern, Bern. Tommy, you can't do this. You don't bump guys. It's not right, Tom. I
2: can't, Tom. Two of us have faced worse odds.
5: Never without reason. I thought you said you
3: didn't care about
5: Leo. I said we were through. It's not the same thing.
3: I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about character. I'm talking about ethics.
2: Albert Finney, Gabriel Byrne, Marcia Gay Harden, John Turturro.
5: I can't die i here in the woods like a dumb animal. I can't die. Are
3: still alive?
5: You expect me to believe you? No. It's you all over, town. Alive and no heart.
2: No one is what they seem to be. Up is down, black is white. At Miller's Crossing.
0: So Miller's Crossing, this was one of the ones that did not score particularly highly with you. Mm-hmm. And honestly, not not that much with me. I was engaged the whole way through. But it covers um, mobsters, the Irish mob specifically, going up against, were they going up against the Italians? Yeah. Uh, And uh, you've got Albert Finney as the godfather of this one. And his right-hand man is uh, Gabriel Byrne, who never worked with the Coen brothers again. In fact, neither of them did, now that I think about it. And this one is exceptional for two reasons. One, it's about a man wrestling with his own sense of internal decency and that clashing with his occupation. Uh, at one point, Gabriel Byrne has to take John Torturo out to the woods and kill him. And John Turturro ends up blubbing and begging for his life and uh, just doing what you or I would do. Pissing our pants and saying, you can't do this, please don't. And Gabriel Byrne's like, get the fuck out of here. And then has to live with the consequences of that when Torturo turns up uh, like a few days later and goes, so, I'm alive. And it feels like your boss would be rather rather pissed off if he found out that I'm alive. Which gives me power over you. So... This is one of those no-good-deed-goes-unpunished scenarios. Absolutely,
1: although I, that confrontation scene, and this, Miller's Crossing is a good example of uh, what turns up quite a bit in Cohen movies, which is that there are elements that I really like and really mm. respond to, but they are in a setting that I find myself disengaged and uninterested in. Right. So the the whole moral conflict of you you have chosen to do a good thing, and not kill this person, and yet everything is now going to go horribly wrong for you. That fits in with what we've said about people make a, a decision, which is a stupid ass decision, and we can see the the results of that stupid ass decision coming at them over from over the hill. But they make the decision anyway. Although in this that,
0: scenario, we actually respect that he's exactly, made this that's decision. I was about We're to like, say. oh, good, it's, that's it's what i would It's
1: weird in that it goes in in it goes in what we would consider to be the right direction. In a vacuum.
2: Morally
5: speaking. But
1: because of the circumstances that he's in to start with, it's the wrong decision for his environment, as you said, for his occupation. Mm. Um, But I I have to admit, there was a part of me that when John Turturro first turns back up, it's like, dude, he took you out there to kill you in the first place. What makes you think his response isn't just going to be to put one in your brain pan?
0: Mm.
1: But it isn't.
0: (laughs) There's a very (laughs) tense scene where some other mob enforcers are like, well, okay, so if he's dead, let's go find the body. And Gabriel Byrne is kind of walking them slowly through the woods like, there's no fucking body out here. What are you even looking for? What can I do? And there's such tension because you know there's no body out here. He knows there's no body out here. And the hoods are like, there's no body out here. You're a fucking lying-ass dog. Mm. And uh, again, it's like... He's put in this difficult situation because of an act of humanity, an act of kindness and mercy. Yeah.
1: It, it did crystallise for me, though, with, with some thought put into it, what it is about the gangster setting mm-hmm. that I reject so firmly.
0: This is one of my favourite gangster films ever. Oh, yeah. But that's not it's saying not there, anything. It's but that's not
1: saying much, yeah, precisely. Uh, my favourite being, analyse this...
0: Oh yeah that's number 1 we've uh, we've done a whole show and analyzed this we
1: have indeed but the yeah the the gangster setting and the whole mob scenario or, or like just an organized crime uh Unit. environment mm. that the the characters are having to exist in one of the reasons that i really don't like them is that they have these conventions and expectations and social strictures that are even worse than bog standard England. (laughs) Like you are are expected to behave in a certain way. You have to be constantly monitoring yourself that you don't put a toe out of line. And I'm just like, do you know what? In this environment, I am faking my own death. I am leaving, bye-bye.
0: Kind of like Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So if you think about it, like, uh, whenever they get to the stage in Romeo and Juliet where it's like, oh my God, Exile. I'm like, yeah.
1: Yes. Ex- exile is Go! good at this place. Leave. Leave. <laughs> There's nothing good for you Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Apart from
0: Makusha, who's rad. The who em- could should really come with the,
1: you. But he's dead by that point, so.
0: But, mm, yeah, I suppose so. But like, they could have decided let's run the fuck away from Verona before and that's how I feel about mob movies like like, oh my god they're going to whack me with the mob it's slightly different because if you leave they're going to kill you with Romeo and Juliet it's more like like when Paul Savino from Goodfellas like practically strangles Claire Danes, and it's like, if you be mine, I give you to my friend. If not, hang, starve, die in the street. It's like, oh, okay, so if you be mine, I don't really want to get married to a young Paul Rudd, mental as that may sound. He's boring in this, Dave Paris. But your other option is... It doesn't matter, go and die in the street. Mm. Sounds good to me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And thinking about it, that means that Romeo plus Juliet is my second favourite gangster movie because technically speaking, that has put the Romeo and Juliet story in a mob setting. Indeed. We don't see much mobbing going on, but it's pretty obvious that that's what these families are involved in. Mm. Uh, Maybe stuff that's superficially socially acceptable, but they've got feet in the criminal underworld.
5: Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, uh, Captain Prince is not happy about all of this pointing Absolutely. swords at each other and screaming. That's the thing, with all that opera music. The,
1: the t- in, in that story, in that scenario, that's who I am. I am Captain, Captain Prince. Prince going, do you know what, you guys are just fucking wasting my time. Oh, ah,
2: oh,
3: punish it.
1: Absolutely. Um, but he does sort of give this feeling of... of I tolerate what you do because I don't have the power to really do anything about it, but you will keep it as under Mm. the radar as you can.
2: We're talking about Romeo
0: and Juliet a lot lately. We 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 should do that. But either way, it it explains our feelings on mob movies. Like, when we watch Goodfellas and Henry Hill's showing us all this stuff and and like, you know, oh, wow, I'd love to live in that lifestyle. No, I would would hate it. That is hell for me. That is absolute fucking nightmare hell. I would hate
1: that. And then when you incorporate the whole family with a capital F stuff... And given that we are both pretty much of the mindset that if your family is causing you massive toxicity problems, you have no Mm. idea how easy it is to just not speak to people. (laughs) Mm.
0: So, I mean, that's the, the core of Miller's Crossing. The other really notable thing about it is Carter Burwell's score. He scored almost all of the Coen Brothers films. This one is a masterpiece purely for the main theme. We will be playing it at the end as we close out, folks. I've heard it described as what every Irish person hears when they enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, that's so lovely. And it has little to, like, it adds emotional weight and melancholy to a film that doesn't deserve it, frankly. Like, the score is so, it's like Tron Legacy. The music by, the, the, uh, um, by Daft Punk mm. is transcendent relative to the film itself.
5: Yeah.
1: In fact, as I recall, the first mixtape you ever gave me, mm-hmm. which was a CD because it was the year 2000.
0: No, had... I made your mixtapes oh, you as did, well. You
1: did make me cassettes, didn't you? So anyway, it had some Miller's Crossing music on it.
0: Wow. I had forgotten that.
1: Mm-hmm. And something from A Simple Plan, mm-hmm. which was around...
0: Yeah, the so. Danny Elfman
2: uh, uh, score for that is wonderful.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. Okay. For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink.
3: Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor.
5: Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm
3: writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, man.
5: Ah! Is that him? Is that
2: Bond Fink? Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capital Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. Is that more than one thing? Okay. Devil on the canvas. Twelve apple, take one.
3: just having trouble getting started. While well, it's very... Wrestling picture, what do you need, a
2: roadmap? We all need understanding, Barton.
3: Oh, you'll lick this picture business. Believe me, you got a head on your shoulders. And what is it they say? Where there's a head, there's hope.
2: I'm sitting in the audience. The lights go down. Capital logo comes up. Come on. Uh... LAPD. Got
4: some
3: questions we want to ask you. Sorry, I'm I'm in troubles something horribles haven't
2: You're A male Caucasian, about 30 years old Ever seen Munt with anyone fits that description But, you know,
3: with the head still on Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind
2: Right now, the contents of your head are the property of capital pictures But, Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! A new film by Joel and Ethan Cohen.
0: So, Barton Fink is the first of their struggling artist films, I think. Like, there's no kidnapping so much. I mean, is there a bit of a kidnapping? There's a bit of like holding at gunpoint and you can't leave,
1: there's, there's which a degree constitutes of, there's kidnapping. There's a degree of hostaging. I don't mm. know if you'd quite call it kidnapping. But. but
0: mostly it's about a writer played by John Turturro again, who now at this by this point was like, oh, I'm with these guys for the for the long haul, mm. and then ends up it's not being. It's this or
1: Transformers. Uh,
0: but that it's <laughs> he's in Transformers because Michael Bay really loves Coen Brothers films, but doesn't understand why they're good. Excellent. And he tries to make them himself by getting in for John. Tur- Turo, Francis McDormand, uh, John Goodman, and saying you just improvise, and they're like, "Well, you know, the Cohen Brothers write really good, tight scripts." And he's like, "No, no, no, you just improvise funny stuff, and it'll be the same thing." That's 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 it's that's not the, not same, not the way it works, It's dude. not. Quirky, weird, unexpected shit. Maybe Simmons is wearing boxer shorts and has to strip down to his boxer shorts and socks. Not sock the same garters. thing, Michael. Well, may, maybe Francis McDormand um, like says something really snippy. Hey. I'm Wang Deep Wang Deep
5: Wang. You're not getting it.
0: Deep throat. Totoro, who is very prevalent throughout this middle period of, we're now approaching the like when the Coen brothers became kind of a household name among cinephiles, like yeah, people w- had recognised, oh my God, these guys really know what they're doing and yeah. they're here to stay. If
1: you're gonna study their movies hmm. in, a, in an academic environment, this is the period.
0: <laughs> so, Toturo kind of gets dragged into, uh, it's an old school Hollywood, like the golden age. It's 1941. He's a Broadway playwright named Barton Fink and he is tasked by the movie studio to write a boxing picture for them. And his heart's not in it. And that's the core of the movie. He's trying to write something he doesn't really care that much about, and the more complexity he considers adding, the more the studio are like, no, 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 But at the same time, like, he gets them all fired up with ideas, so it's this weird kind of abuse and neglect scenario with the studio system, which feels... Uh, From this point onwards, uh, anecdotal from the Coen Brothers' perspectives, like they've gone, they've been told, "You're you're the new hot shit. We want you to make this. Our hearts aren't in it. Well, fuck you then."
1: Mm. Well, also, Del Toro
0: would have gone through the same thing.
1: They've got this thing going on, which we literally just just described with Michael Bay. They're saying, "Right, you're a big name from the stuff that you've done on the stage. Just transfer that to our environment, Mm. but it doesn't translate. It's it's not the same thing." and they don't seem to be able to understand or accept that they're just like well you write so you should be able to write in this format over here
0: and he holds up in an old sort of twilight zone hotel which is and this is the the film's a little bit lynchy uh, i don't know if you uh, if if you can correlate i suppose blue velvet yes um just in terms of Things within the confines of this hotel aren't necessarily fixed once you've it's a little this, bit fantastical
1: once you've crossed this threshold, you are effectively in a, a a limbo state
0: yeah and he can't leave the hotel because he's got to write this fucking uh film but he doesn't really like he can't close in on the film itself and various things distract him and he is open to those distractions because his heart's not in it.
1: It's Hotel California'll
0: bet. A little bit. And you'd imagine that a writer's retreat, so like taking yourself away from all the stuff, would be the ideal way to, to get something done. But this is the difference between doing something because it's coming out of you mm. and being commissioned to do something that isn't coming out Absolutely. of you and, and not feeling it.
1: Creativity lies in a a point of very carefully held tension between stimulus and the space to turn that stimulus into something else mm. if you have too much stimulation you can't create if you have not enough you can't create if you have no space you can't create and if you've got too much space and, and mm. nothing that you can touch at the sides it you can't yeah. it's going to be meaningless
0: And John Goodman, who was in uh, Raising Arizona, is now finally playing what I would consider a Coen Brothers, we-know-what-we-can-do-with-this-guy version of John Goodman. He's got this weird... He's another guest at the hotel. He keeps going, hey, how's it going? And hanging out with Barton and getting pally with him. But he also seems just as lonely as Barton. And they... uh, Uh, They have a sort of a weird one-sided conversation where he's doing most of the talking and Barton's just listening, but it's enough for Barton to be both uncomfortable and at the same time craving these distractions.
1: Absolutely. He keeps making connections. It's not just John Goodman.
0: Judy Davis Uh, as well. The great Judy Davis.
1: He keeps making these connections with people who are effectively as lonely and isolated as Mm. he is. But that doesn't necessarily translate into now you have two people who are less lonely. Mm. What you actually have is two Too people man, who are lonely yeah. in the same room.
0: And you've got um, the what Barton wants to be in the shape of John Mahoney, the great John Mahoney, uh, who is a successful writer in the hotel as well. But then as things transpire and he kind of gets to know John Mahoney through his screaming through the walls, he's not a happy chappy.
1: Absolutely. And the more he learns about him, the more it's like, well, why am I... F- why am I on this ladder to become this person who I'm discovering is unhappy mm. and mean?
0: Well, effectively, he realises that the, the road to success are, in fact, train tracks. And you can proceed up them, but you can't really veer off to the left or the right.
1: Mm. And eventually you just grommet, trying to throw them down <laughs> in yourself as you go.
0: And, uh, yeah, it, it comes to a, a dramatic head uh, <laughs> near the end uh, with... Um, lots of uh, of screaming and shouting there's a bit in Miller's crossing which is probably the most screaming fat guy of all Cohen brothers moments where for almost no reason at all a guy sitting in the background of a scene just starts going ah, ah! And it's just, I'm living in a cuckoo clock at these times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> that, that, I would suggest, is the aspect of Barton's psyche that is desperately trying to fight its way out of this film.
0: That was in Miller's Crossing, so it fought its way all the way to a previous film they'd done. <laughs> Um, and also, I think the the either the letdown or the making of this film is Barton has been espousing a virtuous reason for him to be doing the writing, to help people, to connect with people, to help them to better understand life. And by the end, he's like pointing fingers and saying, you morons! I, like, everything's like pearls before swine for you people, and it's like, he he's lost his way as an artist because he went in with ideals, but now it's like people don't deserve them, so what's he even doing? It's but very much limbo. He
1: can't... Part of the problem is that he never gives himself that space for self-reflection or... Uh, again, this—he never gives himself that space for self-reflection. You could write under every single Coen Brothers film ever. <laughs> um,
0: or he reflects too much and doesn't act.
1: But it's—but that's not—that's not the kind of reflection that actually teaches you anything. Mm. That's that's obsessive fixation on on small details. But the. Connection that he believes he is going to engender for other people is something he is desperate for for himself. And if he could just admit that and start there. Mm then it might get him onto a road that he actually wants to be on, but he can't. It's all got to be this highfalutin, I I am going to create great art so that it will enable uh, people to reach across these these barriers of class and space and time and and all the rest of it. No, you're going to write as a wrestling picture. Well, Mm. what's that going to achieve? Well, if you give yourself the space for reflection, it actually might achieve quite a bit. Mm. But he can't see that.
0: And he can't connect himself with the
1: work. Exactly. So he just walks around being this bizarre ball of resentment.
0: Mm. And there's similar films later on in the Coen's library, but I think I like the way this ends more than almost all of them Mm. because it has, I I won't say how it ends, but it has a kind of a, huh, feeling, which is far better to end on than a, uh, uh, credits. Which they have done See, at
1: I, least twice. Uh, yeah, I suppose the yeah the ultimate ending, but there is a degree of oh fuck it.
5: Oh, fuck. <laughs>
1: Towards the end of this, which definitely manifests in a lot of Cohen films.
0: It's oh fuck it, followed by yeah, huh, exactly though, which I
2: like. Yeah. Once
3: upon a time,
2: the American dream was power,
5: wealth,
3: and success. But in the city that never sleeps, the American dream is about to get a wake-up call. Just got hired today. You know, entry-level. But I got big ideas. When the president, an owner of 87% of the company's stock drops,
2: then the company, too, has a problem. What we need now is a new president. Some jerk.
4: My leg is on fire. And really push around you yeah you boss this letter was sat down this morning by the big man himself
3: Sit yeah, down. go ahead try it out
4: did the board city you an idea man when they promoted you from the mail room
2: well i guess so i don't think they promoted me because they thought i was a schmo
1: the guy's a real moron
3: cigarette no thank you what an imbecile come up with this from joel and ethan cohen
0: it's fun it's healthy the kids will
2: just love it and we put a little sand inside to make the experience more pleasant did you have any idea there'd be such a huge response
3: this is the present i don't think anybody
2: expected this much hoopla comes a comedy of fame
3: (gasps) fortune sex
2: Greed. Yeah. And the American way. Say, Amy, how about you and I grab a little dinner or a show after work? I was thinking maybe the king and I. Uh, how about Oklahoma? Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Paul Newman.
5: I'm getting off this merry-go-round.
2: Proxy oh, the hotsucker Proxy.
0: The Hudsucker Proxy, which we watched again last night in yes. HD this time. Absolutely. And you misjudged the first time. You were, I It's fine. No, 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 I
1: didn't I didn't misjudge it, but it went into I so I If you didn't it. love
0: it, you misjudged it.
1: Well yeah, alright, that's fine. No. Right. <laughs>
0: Anyone who sees the Hudsucker proxy and doesn't love it is <laughs> wrong. It's fine. It's fine to be wrong.
1: <laughs> but you're wrong. Um, so, I, as we were doing this project, I wrote out a list of the films in order that I enjoyed them yeah. and engaged with them. And,
0: we and, ranked yeah. them. We both yeah.
1: did, and that adjusted over time and some of them on reflection I moved up the list and some of them I went off a bit
0: Of note, so our so. rankings do run relatively parallel there's a little shuffling up and down yeah. but yeah. the same things appeal to us at the top and bottom
1: Absolutely But I realised what Or
0: once, to us
1: Once I'd written this list that it divides quite neatly into three categories So there's the films of theirs that I really, really enjoy There's the films of theirs that I could really take or leave mm-hmm. and then there's the ones in the middle which are fine and I engage but they're not particularly they don't grab vivid you. to me yeah. and the Hudsucker Proxy was at the top end of the middle and it's now moved to the bottom end <laughs> of the top
0: so it's a little bit better so
1: it's a little bit better but that means it has jumped an entire category
0: mm-hmm. now this was one of the uh, few that uh, they uh, wrote along with Sam Raimi and I can feel the Sam raimi about it mm-hmm.
1: not least for the presence of Bruce Campbell yeah
0: he's in there as uh, Sam Like kind of, if you want me, you're gonna get Bruce. I'm amazed Ted Raimi's not in there. What what was he doing? Where's Ted? College. He could have been in the letter room.
1: Oh no, it didn't come out till 94, so yeah.
0: A Couple of years after Candyman, which he was briefly in at the beginning of that one. Anyway, uh, so- He might
1: have been doing uh, Sequest.
0: Maybe. The Hudsucker Proxy is about a complete honest, but not very bright, but at the same time, quite thinky young man. Played by the 78-foot-tall Tim Robbins.
1: He's naive.
0: Who was just about to do the Shawshank Redemption.
1: Yes, in which he was also naive.
0: Yeah. Uh, And uh, he comes from the uh, country and has come to New York. And it is 1958, but it feels very 30s and 40s as well. There's so much art deco here. And it deals mostly with big businessmen in a tall tower And at the very beginning, uh, the guy who played the big Lebowski, Charles Durning, who played Waring Hudsucker, oh, he died in 2012, aged 89. That's a pretty good innings. But he's a recurring uh, uh, face in the Coen Brothers uh, library.
1: Just uh, regards the time setting, by the way, I feel like a lot of the Coen's movies, a lot of them, even the ones that are ostensibly more modern day, Mm. are set in this weird sci-fi side tangent universe mm. where it's, it's always the tail end of the depression mm. because World War II never happens.
0: It's an analogue Western as well. The moment people start using smartphones in a Coen Brothers movie, you know that you're watching something very different from everything else they've done. Yeah, Might, might not necessarily be a bad thing, but it is a signifier that they've changed tact because they did not grow up with cell phones. They're mm. way older than that. They did not grow up with smartphones and their worlds don't have that measure of communication in them. In fact, in oftentimes, it requires people to not know what other people are thinking and to not to simply text them, what do you think about this? Because that would actually change the events of the film.
1: And not just not know what they're thinking, not know what they're saying. People in Home Brothers movies can outright tell somebody else what they think and how they feel, and it just doesn't come hmm. across.
0: But since this is 1958, the communication was all done by telephone, and somehow vacuum tubes are still... yes. At the beginning of the film, wearing Hudsucker, who has reached the pinnacle of human success and is a businessman who did everything he wanted, in the middle of a board meeting where they're all gloating, uh, headed up by our teeth-gnashing Paul Newman, cigar constantly clamped in his mouth, uh, playing Sidney J. Musburger. Uh, the big Lebowski, the big Hudsucker, gets up on the table, runs all the way down it, and throws himself out of the 44th story window. 45 including the mezzanine? Yes. Hurtles down into the street at peace. Like, he has decided that this is the thing he's going to do, and it, it, this is signified by a tiny little thing. As he's plummeting down, he screams for a bit, and then wipes a bit of stuff off of one of his le- the lenses of his glasses. Like, that doesn't matter, but it does illustrate that he's trying to experience the moment without irritations. Which is an odd, strange, kind of wonderful touch. And then Tim Robbins, Norville Barnes, uh, is this new guy from the country who steps in the door just as Hudsucker slams into the street and then gets immediately uh, sent down to the mailroom for his new hot, noisy work, and his first job is to run a blue letter up to the very, very top floor, which somehow gets him wearing Hudsucker's old job, whereby he is head of the company, while the board are playing a stock game, hoping for, to be able to buy out a 51% share so that they get control over Hudsucker Industries.
1: Specifically, they are trying to prevent those shares falling into the hands of the general public. Uh, Hudsucker owned like 80-something percent. And in the event of his death, if he doesn't give any other instructions, it's supposed to go for general Mm. sale. And at the price it's at at the moment, they couldn't afford to buy it themselves.
0: What's notable is that while they're disgusting and greedy... There's something pitiful about the board. Mm. Like, they're these hunched-over, wizened old men. And they, you know, as it transpires in the movie, Hudsucker wasn't happy. All of his success didn't make him happy. And clearly none of them are happy either. All they're doing now is worrying because they're not going to get
1: all the monies. Mm. Well, they're, well, they're not... I think you mentioned that none of them are particularly overly wealthy themselves. Obviously they're very comfortable, but they're not millionaires. Yeah, one of them says I was don't...
0: expecting to be a millionaire and I'm like, "You are literally what I'd imagine if I was going to say millionaire."
1: Exactly. But this is the thing. They're the board. They don't really they don't seem to own much stock in the company itself. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they are entirely dependent on the decisions and direction taken by mm-hmm. the company president.
0: The whole film is very Gilliam-esque. This is our version of Brazil.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, I can see that.
0: As in, uh, it's it's kind of sending up both ends of the spectrum and asking us as an audience the question, why is it so extreme? Mm. It never reaches a conclusion as opposed to human beings are very silly and we, for some reason, favour hierarchies. If we didn't, we wouldn't have hierarchies. And that is a damn shame. So... Uh, it's because
1: we get overwhelmed by decisions and we like to think that there's somebody above us, more important than us, smarter than us, who can make the decisions that we feel overwhelmed by.
0: As this patsy, this boob, this uh, nobody shoved into a position of extreme authority uh, is told to shut up and smoke cigars, he comes up. he has already come up with a plan, an enterprise, something he's been planning for years for the kids. And he expresses it by holding up a piece of paper with a circle on it. And everyone stares at the circle, and he doesn't explain. That's the gag. As it turns out, what he's invented is the hula hoop. And it's 1958, and eventually one thing leads to another, and there's a big hula hoop craze. And as a result of his success, and appearing out of nowhere, the press are very interested in him. So uh, editor Perry White, played by John Mahoney, uh, screams at his uh, board of uh, newspaper dudes, including a very rangy and handsome 1994 Bruce Campbell. Uh, you know, what does this guy do? What does he like? Does he put jam on his toast? If not, why not? I want to know everything about him. Then enter Jennifer Jason Lee in one of the most appealing of all Coen Brothers performances, definitely the best that I've seen her perform in her career. Amy Archer.
1: Lois Lane.
0: Lois Lane. The I'm just going to give you a sample of the way she speaks. She's doing Catherine Hepburn, and she's doing it so quickfire and so ferociously that she is just a joy to watch Eat Up the Screen.
5: Fake!
1: huh i tell you the guys are phony phony huh has a three dollar bill says who says me amy archer why is he an idea man because Hudsucker says he is what are his ideas why won't they let anyone interview him and just take a look at the mug on this guy the jutting eyebrows the simian forehead the idiotic grin why he has a face only a mother could love on payday the only story here is how this guy made a monkey out of you al
2: yeah well monkey boy. or not i'm still editor of this rag Amy, I thought you were doing that piece on the FBI. Jared Gover, when will he marry? I
1: filed it yesterday. Nice hire.
2: Well, do a follow-up. Hoover, Crabbuster, or Pennywise.
1: And
4: phone. the rest of you mugs get up off your yeah. brains and get me that Idea Man story.
1: Al, he's the bunk. She's also doing His Girl Friday.
0: Roslyn Russell. Yeah, she's absolutely doing that. And... Uh, one of the only points of contention in the movie for me is that uh, she gets a, a. She goes undercover, pretends to be a girl from Muncie to uh, Im- impress poor, foolish Norville, uh, and Norville buys it hook, line, and sinker, and it's just. He's so happy to have someone from his old hometown there who. You know, and he doesn't pick up on the fact that she's improvising badly as <laughs> someone Although from I've, this place.
1: I might have read this wrong, but does it turn out later on that she is actually from Muncie originally?
0: No, I I could be wrong. I think she just actually starts to really like the persona that she's put on there because it decomplicates her life. And that kind of is where... It, it becomes a little murky. It becomes there's a couple of issues with the Hudsucker Proxy, which I can completely understand. If some people would be like, you know what, I'm not going to like this movie. One is that Tim Robbins tears Amy to pieces whilst complaining about the woman who wrote a report on him, saying that he was a complete ignoramus. You know, he's saying it to his trusted new secretary, and he's actually tearing her apart and saying she's probably a bit of dried up old maid, one of the boys, uh, or tries to be one of the boys, and she. Kind of spits back at him and slaps him, uh, regard you know, because she's hurt. But then it seems like he's really gotten to her regarding how hard nosed she is. Hmm. And-
1: because that ultimately that is a, an accusation that will always be leveled at women who do things that a group of men don't like. Yeah,
0: but the film doesn't specifically point to what she does and say there is virtue in this. Eventually it kind of does because she starts shouting at him about firing workers, people with families, so she becomes the scion of any ethical treatment Mm. in this film and she starts to actually be a good influence.
1: Mm. Well, she's the way she's presented in her journalist role, Mm. she is even initially... Always looking for a scoop. Always looking for a scoop, yes. But she is presented in contrast to Mm. the group of ineffectual suits that she is surrounded by. The men who don't have any energy. Her purpose and... and I'll bet my Pulitzer on it. Her reason for being a journalist has always been because she wants to get the Mm. truth about important things out there. She is actually really big into authenticity. And when she starts tearing into Norville, it's to do with him becoming inauthentic. Her initial reason for taking the story is, that she thinks he's a fraud because she doesn't think anybody can be as authentic as Norville is uh, ostensibly mm. being presented as and she wants to uncover the fakery then she realises it's it's actually not fakery but then he starts to be absorbed in the fake environment he's in and she wants to stop that from happening do
0: you know who could have played this role maybe a little bit better than Tim Robbins go on 90s era Brendan Fraser oh yeah yeah I mean,
1: Robbins is great, don't get me wrong, but yeah, Fraser would have done this very well.
0: That is literally his role in a a little scene, a forgotten movie called Blast from the Past, where he plays... Uh, he also played Dudley Do right so this is not a thing that, that was it's not a one off. <laughs> and George of the Jungle as well. He's yeah. this naive, decent, hunker, hunker man meat. Yeah. Um, but-
1: and let's face it, there are reasons why he could not contend with Hollywood past a certain point.
0: Yeah. Uh, blast from the past, he comes out of a bomb shelter where he's been living since the 60s and is now a fully grown adult. And the jaded 90s Alicia Silverstone is like, Are you for real? And then, as it turns out through the movie, yes, he is. But Hudsucker Proxy's other issue is that part of the plot, the key part of the quirky plot, relies on a mystical black man. And this is something that Key and Peel did a fan-fucking-tastic skit about uh, regarding how... Black people working around the office and sort of sorting out your paper tray and, and and cleaning up after you can then be the arbiters of mystic ancient wisdom from the old world and they can help struggling white people through their problems, which is a little condescending. But
4: babe, moving out? Please, this is the worst possible time. Please don't do this. Babe? <sighs>
3: Garbage?
5: Huh?
3: Can I take your garbage? Yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, I find the more garbage in the can, the better it feels to dump it all out. I suppose that's why we let it get so full in the first place, so we can start over. Here to fix the copier? Yes, sure, sure. Hey, how did you... Sometimes things ain't really broken. It's the way we treat them that needs to be fixed. (laughs) (laughs) Who the hell are you guys? The The important important question is, who are you, Steve?
0: And then his two wise, magical visitors notice each other.
3: Well, If it isn't Mr. Stanley. Carl.
0: A wizard duel is imminent.
3: You need to find your own troubled white boy. I was here first. Trust the field. (coughs) There
2: can be only one. Magical Magical. Negro.
4: Good Lord, are you all right? Well, I guess sometimes things have to come apart before we can put them back together again. Oh, you're a magical Negro too. Who you call a Negro, bitch?
0: Notably, the aforementioned Shawshank Redemption neatly sidesteps this trope by having Red be the guy who gets everyone their stuff, but be very, very human and flawed. He's not magic at all, and he is confounded by what Andy is able to do, but at the same time, Andy couldn't have done it without him. That is a wonderful example of strong black casting. And while we're on trope talk and the assumptions of privileged white people, of which I am one, Chris Rock.
4: You find a brother over six, I know some of you white people know an old black man. You go, oh, Willie at the job, he's so nice. Willie hates your guts. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more racist than an old black man. You know why? Because an old black man went through some real racism. He ain't go through that. I can't get a cab shit. He was the cab. <laughs> the white man just jumped on his back, Main Street. You know what's wild about the old black man, though? Old black man, he ain't gonna let you fuck up his money. You Whenever know, an old black man sees an old white man, the old black man always kisses the old white man's ass. Like, how you doing, sir? Pleased to meet you. Whatever I can get you, you let me know. As soon as the white man get out of sight, he's like, cracker, ass cracker. Cracker ass cracker, I put my foot in the cracker ass cracker ass cracker. I wish that cracker would have said some shit to me. Saltine ass motherfucking cracker. Two two motherfucking cracker kiss my ass, you fucking cracker. White man come back. Howdy, sir. (laughs)
0: This is not one of the reasons why I made Raven in uh, uh, New Century definitely have all sorts of his own problems rather than just turning up and enigmatically saying ancient native wisdom. There is a force at work inside
2: my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You're the child of the prophecy. Really? No! (sighs) Prophecy. (sighs) You jackass. His lip curled in derision as he bit down upon his cigarette holder. The director dug into my past and uncovered that little nugget about me. But his information sources didn't ascertain the bigger picture. Which is? I am shit at being a shaman. Oh. I was told by my elders and betters not to pursue the role. His tone was laced with bitterness. I can't help you. This is beyond both my pay grade and the limits of my spiritual comprehension. A sly grin crossed his features. I got some stuff in my bag. It often lends me a cosmic perspective. Why don't you take it tonight? See what happens. Oh, is it peyote? God damn it. You need to watch those racial assumptions, bookworm. I apologize deeply. I don't have a peace pipe or a fucking totem pole in my knapsack. They're mushrooms. Are they
0: likely to induce a powerful transportive state? Yeah, they'll get you pretty fucked up. But if you can get past the fact that they're indulging in this particular trope, which I think at that point wasn't quite as 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 overdone as it then kind of became. Uh, but if you can get past that, and if you can get past the fact that... Um, Initially, Tim Robbins' character is very... Like, he gets weird levels of of dismissive sexism out of fucking nowhere. Like, he's a really nice guy, but he dismisses the writer of this uh, article about him as, like I say, just a a dried-up old maid. And it's like, where's this coming from? Who taught you this shit?
1: I think part of that is to show how quickly Hmm. the corporate environment sinks in
0: which is how what should happen is um he should like show the paper to paul newman who then tells him that and then he parrots that to her illustrating that he got it from a guy who would assume that kind of stuff
5: Mm.
0: that's that's how i would have slightly changed it um but the actual film itself it's a screwball comedy Uh, but it does have a heart to it, and it's got, you know, beautiful photography, and there's this model New York that they don't even particularly try to make not look like a model. In the snow, these sort of uh, uh, tall towers, and uh, it just... There's a romance to it, and Carter Bellwell's score also has this... (laughs) kind of soaring golden age of Hollywood feel, and it seems like, A, this could have been a huge Oscar winner, and B it was probably it's probably the most accessible public facing version of a coen brothers story like i suppose people could watch it and and go well this is fun like for example willow loved it willow was having a whale of a time with it whereas they wouldn't like something like say a serious man mm-hmm. And it has noirish qualities, and and a strange sort of. There's one point where there's a Greek chorus of a cab driver and a a policeman narrating the meeting between Jennifer Jason Leigh's pretend character and uh, Tim Robbins' real character as they sort of, like they conduct their meet cute inaudibly as the Greek chorus tell us what she's doing to get him around to her side. This is also the last film that the Coen brothers did before they became kind of those guys. The Like Fargo was next and that really put them on the map in terms of being filmmakers. Yeah. Because remember this was the era of Tarantino and people were really into the idea of crime mm. and crime thrillers. And I don't think Miller's Crossing did enough different with crime mm. to really get them noticed
1: yeah as as somebody who was not especially I I was into the films I Mm. watched but I wasn't especially into cinema uh, as a broader concept in the mid to late 90s and Fargo even got my attention
0: Mm. but Hudsucker there's this kind of slapstick comedy element to it which again feels very Sam Raimi it's almost like he blocked several of the scenes It also feels a bit Simpsons. Like there's a scenario where he throws a letter in the burning bin of Paul Newman's office and then the bin catches fire. And then in the background, while Paul Newman's talking to him, he runs to grab a giant bottle of water from the drinking fountain runs staggers zigzags left and right across this incredibly long office in the background to get all the way to the bin with the bottle held upside down so all the water drains over the carpet and then there's only a drop left when he gets to the bin so he stamps into the bin to try to stamp out the flames and his foot gets wedged and his leg catches fire and he's careering all over the office in a not dissimilar like full physical comedy to bruce campbell in army of darkness mm. so it, that bit in particular feels very rainy.
1: yeah there's there's also i would say in terms of the production design there's a distinct opposition between barton fink and Hudsucker proxy mm-hmm. in the sense that well for a start they take place on opposite coasts yeah. but also barton fink is all about you you have no space you are crammed into these tiny little hotel rooms these tiny little offices this tiny little mindset of the thing that you've been the, the one job that you've been given to do that anybody wants you to do and everything being very small and very narrow in the hood proxy it's Everything's Everything very tall and vertical and wide. Very tall or very long. You have these long tables, mm-hmm. these long office rooms. The architecture is alienating and robs them. you of
0: humanity Absolutely. or robs the characters of humanity. Yeah. And to, you have to pull in tight to actually get to the people.
1: Yeah, and, and the when you see people interacting in these big empty offices, mm-hmm. they are huddling together because they, there's too much space. They can't breathe with all that room around them. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the one place where people seem to be happy, which is the juice and coffee bar mm. they're all crammed in together and and it's that's it's the
0: beatnik this... poets of the era like yeah. you know just philosophising and getting to the and Steve Buscemi is the proprietor of that bar you could do a whole movie just set in that bar Absolutely. as various people come and go
1: yeah but that feeling of what really makes us happy is actually reaching out and connecting with people. It's not this corporate mentality mm. of let's put as much space between me and the next guy as possible. Yeah.
0: Also, it weirdly seems like in opposition to the uh, the, the mystical black guy who lives in this clock tower maintaining the clock, There's a guy who changes the name, a a wizened, creepy, unspeaking, silent, old, bald guy who changes the name on the door of the chairman. So he removes Waring Hudsucker's name and he puts Norville's name up there. And then he removes Norville and puts Musburger's name up there. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of like, he's got these glaring eyes. And then he ends up being almost the devil to the uh, old black guy's Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what are they actually saying about the the all-consuming, moving-forward, greedy capitalist, chew-you-up, spit-you-out, get-a-new-one version of business that we are seeing here. That's
1: exactly what it is. Both of these characters mark time. But the guy who lives Ah. in the clock tower is effectively observing and preserving the passage of natural time that will keep going as long as he makes sure that everything ticks freely. Mm -hmm. The guy who's changing the the names on the doors Mm. is marking the artificial blocks of time that man creates by saying, we designate the passage of time as being between this president and that president, and then the next president.
0: Speaking of which, there's one of those old bald guys at 10 Downing Street just waiting for you to screw up.
1: Polishing his brush.
0: (laughs) Time comes for us all, doesn't it, Boris? Time comes for us all, doesn't it, Liz? Time comes for us all, doesn't it, (laughs) Rishi?
1: It's not waiting for him to screw up. He keeps screwing up. It's waiting for him to. Waiting for
0: one of those screw ups to stick.
1: Cumulative collection of screw ups where you just can't come back from it anymore.
0: We live and dream.
1: We do.
0: And we're gonna leave the Coen Brothers there for now. But we will be visiting all of their movies at different points throughout the year, spaced out. And on the next show, we will at least be talking about Fargo, followed by The Big Lebowski and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 supporters get credit every episode. So thank you to Roderick James, Aaron LeCluze, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, James Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert Michael Hasco Robbie Crow Jorn Clausen Sarah Montgomery Timu Hellas-Haya Tim Rosensky Timothy Green Toby Skills Jungius Tom Painter Trey Contreras and Valencia Burns
3: But still I hadn't dreamt nothing about me and Ed until the end. And this was cloudier because it was... Years, years away. But I saw an old couple being visited by their children. And all their grandchildren, too. And the old couple wasn't screwed up. And neither were their kids or their grandkids. Dad. And I don't know. You tell me this whole dream. Was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away, where all parents are strong and wise and capable, and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah.